0: How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack.
1: Hello there. Uh, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, welcome to Uh, How I Got Here. Now, many of you will realise that it's been a couple of weeks. It's actually been about 10 weeks uh, since we had an episode of How I Got Here. Uh, Season one ended um, with rather obvious timing in the first week of March, uh, just as everything was uh, kind of falling around by everyone's feet. So we thought it was uh, around that time it was worth taking a break for a little while while we did more important things. And uh, all the people that we wanted to interview were busy uh, fighting the fires and figuring out how they were going to get through the coronavirus outbreak. That was the beginning of March and we're starting to record new episodes for season two of How I Got Here. For those that don't know How I Got Here is a regular weekly podcast from Mosio and Focuswire looking at the uh, backstory and innovation and startups in travel and transportation. So that's our backstory, we're good to be back, we're glad to be back and our very first guest for what will be episode uh, 29 is someone who's very well known to many of you. His name is Rod Cuthbert. He is the co-founder, the former chairman and CEO of Viator, which is the tours and activities platform that was, I guess, born in Australia but was eventually sold to TripAdvisor in 2014. He actually left the company in uh, 2010 in that executive role to create Rome to Rio. Which was a door to door travel search engine. He left there in uh, 2018 ahead of its eventual sale to, uh, uh, to Go Euro. He's now a non exec director for another activities platform, which is Veltra. He's an investor in brands such as uh, Magpie and is a frequent critic of startups that pass through the battleground and summit stages at Focus Right. Um, many of you that have attended Web in Travel and the Focus Right conference. over the years will know that Rob is a very vocal vocal critic but also praiser I think of startups in the travel industry. So uh, first of all a very warm welcome to you Rod. Thank you for joining us on How I Got Here.
2: Kevin and David thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you.
1: Okay right as is tradition and this tradition will stick within Season 2 is that we always ask our guests a very, very simple question and we ask you to, uh, uh, to respond in as succinctly as we know that you can, Rod. And that's kind of, tell us briefly, how did you get here? And you can be as flamboyant or as factual as you like, but tell us how you got here to this day, Rod.
2: I, I think the most succinct way would be to say through a series of fortunate events, I was very, very lucky that I was in the right place at the right time, met the right people and, uh, and the, you know, the, the ball just broke the right way for me on a couple of different occasions. And, uh, it, it wasn't certainly because of any particular, um, good planning or amazing foresight or tremendous technology or anything like that. I was, I was simply a lucky guy.
1: Right, but okay, well, you've left the, the kind of the carrot hanging there in front of us for, to, to start kind of getting at you with then. So, yes, lucky, very fortunate. But if we go right back to the formation of Vital um, mm-hmm. alongside being lucky, what were you doing at that time to allow you to create something that you eventually sold for $200 million to TripAdvisor? You must have had something more than good fortune.
2: Right. Um yeah, it was a good fortune that got us started, I guess. Um, with, a, with a friend of mine, uh, Peter Fox, we started a company to build websites for people. And we didn't have a particular view on what type of websites or what sort of people, but um, we, we won a particular customer. It was a travel company. It was one of the travel corporation group, um, Creative Holidays. Uh, and, and they told their sister companies, Trafalgar, Insight, one or two others, and we ended up, we had a bunch of different companies that we were building and managing websites for. Uh, so we we managed to build a good portfolio of travel clients and we said, why don't we specialize? Because travel is deep. It's a great thing to sell on the internet because you don't have physical goods that have to be delivered. Um, it just seems a terrific match. And we noticed that there was money going into online travel businesses in the United States and in Europe. And we thought, well, that's, that's possibly a good thing too. So let's, let's really focus on this travel space.
1: Were you anticipating it being, you know, you said it was across a, a, a industries, but was that a fairly quick process from when you launched it to when you realized that, okay, let's just focus on the travel part of this?
2: Yeah, it was literally a couple of weeks um from from mid-august when we started i think by mid-september we we would uh transition from being a web development company to to a web development company for travel companies for the travel industry we 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 just started to specialize that quickly i mean travel is a really deep space so we saw hey there's there's plenty of potential here
1: okay and last one from me for for a moment then i mean i always forget that Peter was someone that you started it with. I mean, you're so synonymous as, as an individual with founding Viator. How did you meet Peter? And um, we'll come on as basically the follow up question is, I think he was with you for three or four years. And how, um, if you could just tell us quickly, but what, what was the reason why he left given, given that he did come on to have such great success?
2: Um, Well, he was the only person that made any money out of Viator for 19 years. (laughs) He sold the bulk of his shares when he left in, I guess, 97 or 98 um, for, I think, just under a million dollars or so. Um, And he was literally the only person that made any money besides salaries from our company until, until 2014. So he was pretty wise, I think. And he did well at the end as well because he still had, uh, you know, a a few shares left that were sold to to TripAdvisor. We we had met when I was working for an online travel business um, in Sydney, a company sort of like CompuServe. Um, I was there for a little while. I left to join Peter to do something independently. Um, I just, you know, I'm not a great employee. and I figured uh, I, I would probably be better as an employer. Okay.
1: So, hey, actually, I'm going to follow up. Sorry, yeah. sorry David. I'm just going to follow it. up there because you did. That was great. Why would you say you're not a great employee?
2: Um, well, I think that, uh, you know, I just follow my heart and my gut on things. I make decisions for reasons that sometimes I'm not even quite sure myself why I've made the decision to go in a certain direction or hire a certain person. And in a corporation you have to you've got to justify your decisions. Um, as an entrepreneur, particularly you know, if if, if you're the boss and, and you've got your own money at stake, you're not so much in that position. Once you get a lot of investors involved you are, but in the early stages you can uh, you can you know plot your own course without having to you know justify every move that you make. And there is a lot of decision making early on in a startup. You know, literally hundreds of decisions, much more than when you're in a corporate environment.
0: Yeah. So, Rod, I want I want us to delve a little bit into some of those decisions and the kind of the the process uh, by which you started Viator. So, I don't think we've heard the full timeline yet. From uh, you know mm-hmm. when you uh, started kind of working for uh, uh, the travel group, I forget the ones that own Trafalgar, uh, and then how did you make the transition from deciding you want to start Viator? Uh, what was the original insight? And I just love to, and I know that you guys there was a huge amount of time between uh, and kind of. Uh, you know when you started it, and when you actually sold it, and and I think that's something a lot of entrepreneurs can potentially sympathize, especially anyone in the travel industry right now who's probably not going to be able to sell their company for a couple of years. Um, but let's like let's delve a little bit into more into that timeline.
2: Yeah, um, it's, it's it's pretty interesting, uh, and and this is one of the lucky things that happened. Um, we uh, we built websites for a couple of years, uh, lots of websites, probably over a hundred for various clients uh, and we got pretty good at that we had good designers um, we hired a guy called jordan digby who built some good tech for us that allowed us to you know create templates and get people up and going really quickly and remember this is back in in the mid 90s when when the tech wasn't all that uh, all that flash that flash was a thing back then for a little while uh if you remember um, we hired a woman called Jill Hazel, who had been working at, at, at Sabre uh, in around 1997, and she heard through her connections just before she left Sabre that, that Sabre was putting together a project and looking for a third party who, who had web expertise to build them a web-based system so that travel agents could sell ground product. Essentially, what they were describing was Viator. Uh, it was a, a Viator for travel agents. And the idea being that Sabre, you know, saw that uh, their space was getting more competitive, uh, that they would probably start to lose share to other channels. And they wanted to increase the number of products they had to sell. So an obvious one was what they called ground product, tours and activities. So we, um, Jill organized for us to pitch for that business. Um, they had there was, there was a couple of women who worked for Sabre who came down to to meet with us, and I had a particular insight in one of the the, the meetings that we had with them, and that was that these two women they really liked Sydney. They I mean they loved it. They had come down from Dallas, Texas, which. You know maybe you've got some participants on, on 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 the webinar here that are from dallas texas it's not it's not a tourist destination um it is a center of commerce um sydney is is an idyllic city and i lived in bondi and we went out to the to dinner at the bondi beach on a couple of evenings and and they really enjoyed it and i said to them i said look if we win this contract and you go with us and, and not the company in New York or the company in London that you're talking to, I said, I, I think it would be good if you came down on a quarterly basis over the course of the year, that it will take us to build it, to review progress. Because if we go up to you, you know, we would only be able to afford to have one of our engineers go up. But if you come down, you know, you, you can see the whole team, et cetera. It was a flimsy argument, but it, it um, it built on the certain knowledge that I had, which was that they really, really loved the idea of being in Sydney, Australia, and uh, we won the contract.
0: So take me from there to you know establishing Viator.com, because that sounds like that was a Sabre contract, right? Is is that correct? So that that wasn't that's definitely not what it ended up. Yeah. Ended up building.
2: Yeah, good good catch. So we built it. It took us a year. They came and visited with us every quarter. Uh, they really enjoyed their travel, um, and then, uh, lo and behold, Sabre had one of what turned out over the course of Sabre's you know, long history. They've often had a purge, where they've they've fired a good percentage of their uh, of their staff. Um, and around 1999, 2000, I can't remember the exact year, they fired an enormous number of people, um, including all of the people uh, bar one I think who had worked on our project but certainly the vice president who had commissioned the project so literally this project this product that we had built for them was left without an owner Um, so we you know we we had difficulty frankly even communicating with them about what to do but eventually we found the new um, you know the guy who had taken over this division and he said, "Look, we have no interest in this product now. take it it's yours. We built it for them. they paid for it, uh, and they said, We really don't want it. It's not on our product roadmap anymore you're You're welcome to go ahead and use it yourself
1: hey, just a, a follow up on that one rods. I mean, how think did the land how different do you think the landscape would have been both for you and for Tours and activities. If Sabre hadn't canned that particular project,
2: well, uh, very different. I think large corporations are not good at 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 these sort of innovative projects. You know, once they had gotten their hands on it, I think they would have screwed it up. Um, <laughs> and frankly, um, you know, we didn't. It, we made the product available to travel agents and travel agents didn't really sell much ground content. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it would have been a success for them. Uh, so I think we probably would have gone on to doing something else in, you know, hotels or cruises or, or some other thing. And we wouldn't be talking, I wouldn't be talking to you here today.
1: And just to, just to again on that, the, but the way the landscape evolved, you know, it, some say that, you know, Viator pretty much pioneered the kind of tours and activities booking space for consumer booking space. And mm-hmm. that, that potentially would have set things back if Sabre had bought it and then, as, as you uh, um, predicted, they may have well have canned it. That may have put the whole, industry, the whole se- sector of the industry back a couple of years, Do you, would you say or not? Uh,
2: oh, I think, Kevin, frankly, a lot longer than that.
1: Um, I think
2: as, as the story rolls forward and we go out and start raising funds and talking to uh, people about investing in biotour, what we discovered was that there was just there was just no interest in the tourism activity activities space. Um, I, w- I will I will pick a quote from a few years forward because it's relevant right now. Um, you know the name Rich Barton. Rich was the the founding CEO. I think at Expedia, a very, very experienced and savvy guy who talked himself when he gave presentations on Expedia's um, long-term goals, talked about wanting to be able to sell, you know, a flight to Fiji, a hotel in Fiji, and surfing lessons in Fiji. So he, he understood that. In 2005, Barry Seidenberg and I were out raising money, and we met with Rich Bart. He was a venture partner at a venture capital company in, in the Bay Area. And he said, and I wrote it down in one of my notebooks because I, I felt it was, it was something I wanted to remember perfectly well, his words. He said, is tourism and activities even a thing? And I said, huh? And he said, is it even a big enough market? And I said, Rich, what do you think people do when they get there? I mean, do they go because the flight is so great or because they really love those, you know, 20 square meter hotel rooms at the Hilton? No, man, they go to do things. to go to the museum and, and to do tours and sightseeing and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, yeah, I know, but like, is it a really big market? So, yeah, I think if we hadn't have done it, I think, it would have taken a while for it to get the momentum that we that we created over a long period of time we do I mean we de- definitely didn't have we didn't go from zero to a hundred in seven seconds nothing like that
0: what's what's interesting about your story is I feel like you guys were very early to the market and and I have a, a question I'd like to ask later about timing and kind of how you how you viewed uh, view that but um, before we get to that question i Want to understand, like, kind of coming back on what Kevin said about like moving the industry forward, I feel like because Sabre. Helped you bootstrap this almost. You guys were maybe years ahead of when a tours and activities company should have even existed. So you guys, I like. I'm curious. I'd love to understand a little bit more about it. how did you drag the industry forward. Like I imagine there were a lot of small tours and activities providers that were not selling anything online at this point. And like, what amount of infrastructure did you have to build that now maybe today like get your guide doesn't have to because Peak is building it.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, It, certainly if saber hadn't come up with the idea we were not going to have we would not have come up with the idea we were not talking to uh, you know sightseeing tour operators anywhere in the world it just wasn't on our radar we were talking to multi-day tour companies like like Trafalgar and Insight and Intrepid and you know all of those sorts of companies who offer those you know multi thousand dollar you know 7
0: and 14 day tours. Yeah, we interviewed Travis from um, Tour Radar and that's kind of his more his area, right?
2: Yeah. Um and that didn't really pop for a long time either. Um so it was definitely Saber that, that dragged us along. I guess the next, you know, we we went out, we took that product that we built for Saber and we went out there with a with a B2C product and a B2B product and um, we signed Rich Barton because he wanted to sell surfing in C G. Um, we signed up Expedia fairly quickly. We signed Travelocity, British Airways, Lone Planet. We signed up a lot of people, but the volumes were quite low. Um, it was the B2C thing because we were early, we sort of owned SEO. We didn't have to pay for traffic at all. We just, you know, things to do in Barcelona, it cost us nothing. And we were getting tons of traffic from that, uh, when the ten blue links were there, and they really, you know, they meant something. They were at the top of the page. Um, so I guess, you know, it's a good catch you've made. It's like if, if it hadn't been for Saber, we definitely didn't have the idea. Um, but they opened the, the 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 door for us.
0: Oh yeah, well, kind of expanding on that, back to the what I said about the the timing earlier. Um, I remember my first ever focus, right? I was part of the Young Leaders, uh, you know, summit or whatever. And uh, in that same class with me was Johannes from Get Your Guide. And I was brand new. And um, I kind of didn't really know. And I remember Get Your Guide's logo was kind of funky looking at the time. And I was like, who are these guys? (laughs) And uh, now I think they're worth over a billion dollars. And um, I think a lot about this for Mozio as well, because Mozio started nine years ago in ground transportation. And in the last two to three years, there have been been a bunch of well-funded competitors. And I almost kind of feel like I'm the viator of the ground transportation industry at times, uh, and that we were sometimes too early. Uh, you know, we have, we have like, too, like, we've been around for a long time doing a lot of the hard work back before it was sexy. So how do you think about, you know, timing, like in the recent wave of, kind of tourism activities startups, both on the consumer side and also on the back end with, like, the Fair Harbors and Peaks, and there's been a lot of acquisitions recently. I think the market makes sense the way it's evolved. Um, There was
2: a few companies that came in and tried to um, replicate what we were doing in the early 2000s. Um, Isango was one out of the U.K., I can't really remember, quite a few of them failed because it was just so difficult to uh, to raise money. Um, I think I think the way that the marketplace is evolving now with a lot of different tech companies um, and some really well-funded retailers, it's starting to look like the market order looks, starting to look like what the hotel market looked like, you know, back 15, 20 years ago. Lots of activity, I'm sure there'll be some
1: consolidation. Um, So, yeah. And Rod, how did you, just go back again, when you were coming up with the, um, you know, once you decided to go it alone, Sabre had said they weren't interested in taking it forward, those kind of things. Did you have problems coming up with essentially what was a business model? Did you base it on perhaps how commissions were done in hotels or air, or did you try and come up with something completely different? And how many versions of that did you go through until you settled on something?
2: Well, I had no experience whatsoever uh, as a wholesaler of travel products. None whatsoever. So we hired some people from Qantas Holidays, who, you know, principally they sold, at Qantas Holidays, they sold hotels, but they also sold a little bit of ground product, a little bit of the sort of product that that, uh, that that we would sell, and they sold it through their their travel agents and their own travel uh, offices at the time. It was very small volume, but they they did know some key suppliers, some key inbound tour operators, uh, and they did have a good idea of um, the sort of commission rate and the sort of terms that were standard in the industry. And we took those as a starting point. I think one of the... I'll I'll perhaps just branch here uh, for a second to say that the business had this enormous um, jump after 9-11. You know, the 9-11, it was a tragedy on a human scale. But for the online travel industry, it was amazing. It was like it was like a step change because in those weeks after 9/11, uh, travelers in the United States and and Europe to to a certain extent, but certainly in the United States, they couldn't get through to their their airline or their hotel on the phone, um, and they they were forced to go onto the internet. And what they discovered on the internet was good. Um, They discovered that they could could find out whether their flight was going or they could make a change. They could make a booking. They could get a refund. Uh, They could make a hotel reservation. They could actually look at hotel rooms. They could actually sort of be a travel agent for themselves. And there was just this massive shift away from the old way of buying travel to this new online way in a very short period of time. What that meant for for us was really interesting we We were there, and people started to discover us. we started to get bookings and we we were able to take those bookings in in the months after nine eleven when the travel industry was depressed we were able to take those bookings to operators who were in in a bad way because they hadn't had bookings for a little while they had this gap' because of the whole nine eleven event and so we were like. They loved us, they absolutely adored us. And we did, we, we knew how people in the travel industry paid um, in the traditional travel industry, and that was slowly. Um, you know, travel wholesalers and agents didn't have a reputation as being good payers. So we decided we would pay people on time, that every month on the 15th <laughs> of the month, we would pay our operators and we would pay them not only on time, but we would pay them directly into their bank account. Which, this is 2001, 2002, this was this was new stuff. The combination of those two things laid a sort of a, a, a foundation for our business where universally our, our suppliers really liked doing business with us. So that was a really critical time for us. And couple of decisions. They weren't lucky decisions. I think they were actually, you know, thought through decisions that we made, but they turned out to be small, but really crucial things that we did.
0: Okay. I wanted to kind of ask your opinion about something. So I uh, heard, uh, that something like 20 to 30%, a lot of these uh, these uh, sites, these tours and activity sites are actually selling Super Shuttle or limousines. And then I heard that another big chunk of them are selling hop-on-hop-off buses and Segway tours. And this was said to me by someone telling me why all of these kind of... Um, you know, one was viable back in the day. There was about, like, a lot of kind of these, you know, uh, Airbnb for tourism experiences. Now, obviously, Airbnb is now currently Airbnb for tourism experiences, but um, there were a lot of people who tried to kind of diversify, and um, I was told that a lot of reason why a a lot of them failed was because people misunderstood what people did in destination it was usually the people from dallas uh like you said going to australia and hopping on the hop on hop off bus it wasn't the person looking for a graffiti tour so i'd love to understand a little bit more about your market discovery process how did you guys you know realize what to settle on and how have you viewed other companies as having maybe um missed the the point uh, uh, of like where the big tours and activities chunk of business is
2: Yeah, this is a really, it's an interesting um, topic, or at least the way I understand you to over-ask the question, um, it's an interesting topic. We always, you know, we loved finding new and interesting products. The example that I would use would be the Chocolate Lovers Walking Tour of Paris. It's a really good tour. I've done it, Um, and it's really cool. And we had this theory that, you know, we're going to, prosper because we're going to have all of these cool things that we've discovered that are sort of on the edges there, you know, like the graffiti tour of Barcelona, et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to drive our business forward. And and in a way they did. The fact that we had those things was important, but I can tell you that when people go to Paris, they don't do the chocolate lovers walking tour. They do the hop on, hop off bus. They do the, the Eiffel Tower. They do the Louvre and, and Versailles, etc. There's, there's a small core of products that they do. It always amuses me because I still hear it now about, you know, tech is going to use AI and pattern matching and some other cool stuff to figure out exactly the right things for a particular customer to do when they visit Barcelona. I can tell you what they're going to do when they visit Barcelona. I already know what they're going to do. Everybody does. A certain set of things. They do, the, you know, they, when they come to Sydney, they do the bridge climb, etc. cetera. It's just like there's no need for all that cool tech. Um, once you've got those core products, the other things are like icing on the cake.
0: Yeah, did I almost, really
2: answer your question then, or yeah. did I just go off on my own tangent?
0: No, I mean <laughs> we encourage tangents here, uh, <laughs> but no, like that's exactly kind of part of what I was getting at is that I feel like very often in the travel industry, people um, build the product they want as opposed to listening to the market and what the market needs. And uh, we all like to think of ourselves as not average, normal uh, doing the Segway tour or what everyone else is doing. Um, but, I think we, you know, I found this a lot with with a lot of different companies that start in the travel industry. They they kind of end up, you know, just uh, fantasizing and going off of you know their one experience backpacking around Europe, uh, not uh, you know listening to what the normal person is going to do. So no, I think you you answered it uh, specifically. Um, I wanted to kind of move on here before we we run out of time a little bit. Towards you have ended up transitioning away, um, and there was a long period between uh, until you got an exit and. Um, I think this is something I'm hearing a lot from uh, travel industry entrepreneurs. I know a lot of friends who are looking to exit in the next six to 12 months. Um, Those people that might've bought them are now either borderline bankrupt or definitely don't have the cash to, to outlay. And um, Viator has actually come up a couple of times. Is like, yeah, those guys waited like twenty years for an exit, uh, and were really early. And I, I'd love to just understand that you, at some point, stepped down and you ended up joining Rome Trio. And I forget the exact timing of that. If you joined Rome Trio before Viator was even sold, but you moved on uh, at some point. How did you psychologically make that jump, and what was your thinking at the time?
2: Well, I mean, others helped me. <laughs> I think it is absolutely the case that. That businesses go through um, stages where certain types of founders uh, do well uh, and then they you know they may enter a stage to be specific you know some people are risk averse Uh, I'm not risk averse at all I'm happy with risk I'm happy with taking some chances and getting something started and seeing what happens Uh, but then when the business becomes bigger and there's you know, there's a couple of hundred staff and you've got maybe $15 million of, or $50 million of investors' funds at work. You know, that, that, um, that same attitude that you would use to get things started is not quite so applicable. Uh, and that's what I came to realize. Um, and certainly my board of directors helped me realize that, that I, I wasn't the right person. Um, we very fortunately when we when we funded the business with Carlisle in two thousand five, we had hired a woman called Gary Seidenberg. She was a Stanford NBA who had worked for preview travel and she was exactly the right person to to take the company forward as, as as CEO. So I didn't mind that. It all worked out really well for me. Just one of those things you gotta do.
1: But just sorry, just on that, Rod, I mean it's your and Peter's baby it's almost like you weren't there to see it move on to its new adoptive parents did you was that difficult to do or were you quite happy with leaving it to Barry to dot the I's and cross the T's and you end up okay anyway
2: oh yeah yeah I would never have been able to get it you know I think we were doing you know 40 or 50 million dollars annual revenue in 2010, when I left, and it was four times that, and I would not have been the right person to take the company on on that part of the journey. That's a very spreadsheet-driven uh, part of the journey, and I'm not a spreadsheet guy at all.
0: Yeah, I want, I want to you know talk a little future-looking here in our last few minutes. Um, you I know, hate to set you on your uh, favorite subject of Google and everything, but uh, there was, uh, you know, there's a lot that's going to change in the travelers. You just mentioned nine eleven about how, you know, despite the human tragedy, it was actually good for the travel industry or the online travel industry specifically. Um, I'm curious, what are you seeing, you know, going forward uh, for us now?
2: Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just wonder how valuable anybody's insights are at all. You know, we're we're in such a space of not knowing when this is going to end. And I think one of the key determinants of how it looks after it's all over is how long the lockdown lasts. I mean, if we were able to all get everything started again this year, then we may just have a six to 12 month period where there's a bit of a shakeout and then things get back to normal uh, after that. But if we have a bunch of second wave uh, infections, or, or whatever we call them, a big second wave and a third wave and a fourth fourth wave, and countries open up and then shut back down again and we're, we're in this in this tunnel for two or three years, then it's a different kettle of fish altogether. So I'm, whilst I appreciate your question, David, I, I, I don't think prognosticating about the future I think we're just on
1: shaky ground trying to do that right uh, just just last one from me really Roz. I mean you and I go back a long time and we've uh, crossed swords and been on panels and I've interviewed you many times over the years and um, maybe I've maybe I've just never been making excellent notes or remembered but I never quite heard you say how lucky you say you've been over the years I wonder whether that's something that you've decided you've been lucky as the years have advanced and you've gone through the the entrepreneur phase and you've gone through another couple of businesses now it's now that you consider yourself lucky and and second of all i mean what other kind of lucky moments would you would you identify to so that you can categorize yourself as being a lucky person or a lucky entrepreneur no i think i've
2: always all the way along i've um I, I believe two things my sort of personal motto in life is that anything can happen and often does so I'm prepared for anything um, I, I'm not going to be surprised so let me give you another example of how I think we were we were incredibly lucky we were raising money in 2005 and we didn't have a lot of money left we needed to raise funds our Australian investors have been very patient and they'd It followed on a couple of times, but they were sort of tapped out. We needed a a US investor to come in with 10 million bucks, which at the time was a fair bit of money. Um, We saw, Barry and I probably saw 25 or 30 venture capital firms, and it was always the same. They liked it, but travel, tours and activities, you know, not a thing. So we were literally down to the last name on our list, which is a company called Carlisle Ventures, which, and Carlisle didn't even really have a venture fund. They're a private equity firm. that usually does like oil and armaments and all sorts of other stuff, much bigger than, than what we were looking for. But we took a meeting with this dude um, in San Francisco and the meeting went just like almost all of the 25 meetings before that and at the end he said yeah great Um, I'm going to talk to my partners, and uh, I'll come back to you which I knew at that stage meant I'm not coming back to you or if I do it'll be to say we're not going ahead with this so we got up to leave and I picked up this dude's card and I looked at his name and his name uh, Alan Tiggerson he's at Google now And I saw it was a, you know, I thought this is a Danish name, and I said to him, "Are you Danish?" And he said, "Yeah, why?" And I said, "Man, sit down, we're almost related." And he said, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Mary Donaldson, Mary Donaldson, who is that?" And I said, "She's going to be the next queen of Denmark." The back story is that I'm from Tasmania, and a Tasmanian girl had fallen in love with and married Prince Edward of Denmark a few years earlier. Um, She had met him at the Olympic Games in Sydney um, by chance at a bar. And I knew the whole story. And um, this guy, this Carlisle investor, Alan, like most Danes, was a monarchist at heart and really wanted to know the story but was starved for the details because in America he just wasn't hearing he wasn't seeing the Danish press so he sat down he said tell me everything and we spoke for another 30 or 40 minutes and we developed a rapport right there around the subject of the um, the heir to the Danish throne a commoner from Tasmania just like me another commoner from Tasmania and at the end of the meeting he said this was fun this was fun uh, I'm gonna talk to my partners and maybe we'll see you again and he did and we did and they invested uh, I think 11 15 something like that million dollars and it all worked out that was really lucky
1: so the moral of the story is to come up with a backstory that you can kind of woo your investors in there's absolutely nothing to do with the business and maybe to do with their hometown or their home country really that's it right
2: um look I think in 99 cases out of 100 it just wouldn't have been relevant It, it just it was just there, you know, it was like, Oh my yeah. God, you're from Denmark and I'm from Tasmania. You know, what a weird connection this is. <laughs> it was just a thing. <laughs>
0: David. Damn. Well, I think our time's up. Uh, so, you know, thanks a lot, Rod. I think this is a, been a great interview to kick us off for our season two. Um, so, uh, to recap for everyone listening, this is How I Got Here, Mozio and Focuswire's weekly, uh, again, weekly podcast uh, about the future of transportation and travel. Uh, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Arthur.
2: David and Kevin. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more insight stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages and get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.